0: Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, a member of the Dialogue Board of Directors. Today we're privileged to hear from one of the foremost scholars of LDS history, D. Michael Quinn, and his background is so interesting that my introduction will be a little longer than usual. In the early years of Mike's career as a historian, he was the primary assistant to Leonard Arrington, then church historian. He was also a popular professor at BYU. The Arrington years in church history is sometimes referred to as the Camelot years, as it heralded a new openness to historical inquiry. During those years, Mike began examining documents that had been hidden away in church archives relating to such issues as the Adam-God doctrine, taught by Brigham Young, and post-manifesto polygamy by leading men of the church. His dedication to ferreting out historical truth sometimes put him at odds with church authorities, particularly Boyd K. Packer, whose views on the subject are summarized by his well-known comment that some things that are true are not very useful. Eventually, in 1993, Mike was excommunicated from the church, along with five other academics and feminists. The group would become known as the September 6th. Perhaps surprisingly, while continuing to write honestly about church history, Mike has consistently maintained faith in the core principles of the gospel, and on some issues, It is not uncommon to hear Mike defending the church against its critics. Ironically, many of the historical bombshells in Mike's books and articles that worried church leaders back in the day have since been acknowledged formally by the church in its series of gospel topics essays. Mike has received many honors and awards through the years. Several of his books have won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Award. Last year that association gave him the Arrington Award for Distinguished and Outstanding Service to Mormon History, which is the equivalent of a Lifetime Achievement Award. My favorite of all of Mike's books are his Mormon Hierarchy series. It is a great resource for facts concerning the leadership of the church from its earliest days to the present. Just published a few months ago was the long-awaited third volume of the Mormon Hierarchy Trilogy, subtitled Wealth and Corporate Power. And that's what Mike will talk about today. Before we begin our podcast, let me ask you to please remember that Dialogue depends on the generosity of its listeners and subscribers to keep it financially viable. You can visit us at DialogueJournal.com to make an online contribution. Thank you for your support. And now to our podcast, featuring D. Michael Quinn, speaking to a gathering of the miller Eccles Study Group in Orange County, California. Tonight, it's my great privilege to introduce D. Michael Quinn. Mike received his bachelor's degree from BYU, master's degree from the University of Utah, Ph.D. from Yale University, and I hope I have all that right. He was a popular professor at BYU. In fact, was voted outstanding professor one year. He spent a number of years at the church history library as the primary assistant to Leonard Arrington. There's a lot of interesting things about Mike's story that I could go into, but I want to give him the time and not me. There's an interesting article, I thought anyway, uh, if you Google Mike Quinn and Slate magazine, there's a fabulous article several years ago that talked a lot about Mike's history and I, I just found it fascinating. Of the many books that Mike has written, In articles, I think my favorites are his Mormon Hierarchy series. And I remember buying these years ago and just devouring them. And I look at them now and I think, I don't think I could read anything that heavy anymore. But (laughs) one was called Origins of Power and the second was Extensions of Power. And I do recommend these to you. This one, by contrast, the one that he just published, is a thin book, right? (laughs) Thick Thick for most of us, but... I actually recommend reading these two first. This should be very interesting, and it's called Wealth and Corporate Power. So that's the subject that Mike will speak on, and without further ado, I'll turn it over to you.
1: If you have difficulty hearing me, usually I have a foghorn voice, and no one has any problem hearing me. But if you do, raise your hand and wave, I will speak closer to the microphone. I have a, uh, a an allergy, it's not a cold, so if I daub my nose, it's because of that, it's not contagious, it's just genetic. This book has had a very long gestation, uh, and I'm going to summarize that and then talk about what I think are the... Most striking things that I found in the process of doing the the research, but that that last word is is uh, it has a decades-long history with this book. I started doing the research on the business activities of the uh, Mormon hierarchy, the general authorities, in 1975, and typically what I did was I would look at the information for about a two year period, I'd do research and then I got sidelined by teaching at BYU and other projects that I was working on. And so typically uh, yeah, I did about two years of research in the 80s as well, and about two years research in the 90s. And then I didn't do any more research until 2008. And I'll explain why um, that I resumed very intensive research at that point because I had just finished a major project that I'd been working on, a private uh, biography that a man had left money in his will for me to do for him. And and that took me four and a half years. And when I was done with that and had a breather of uh, about a month then I started full-time on this. But I want to talk about the nature of the research that I did in those early years. Initially, I was interested only in the management experience of the men uh, who we call general authorities. Uh, The the financial was of some interest to me, but I was more interested in tracing the, the management experience in business of all of these men who served during the first century of Mormonism from the 1830s to the 1930s, and it was a total of 124 men. And so I did research throughout the, uh, the West, every state except Alaska, but uh, including Hawaii. And then I did research in uh, various archives that had Mormon material including Harvard and Yale and uh, the Chicago Historical Society and various other locations in Minnesota and Michigan and Missouri that had material, uh, not always in about business and finance, but I researched everything I could find about Mormonism at each of these various locations. Um, when I was focusing In 1975, on their business activities, I was interested in what roles they had in corporations. Uh, I was interested in partnerships as well. But the information on partnerships I learned was uh, primarily uh, maintained by cities, and uh, they were the ones who issued the licenses for partnerships. And I knew from the requirement that was true in Utah as well as other states that when a partnership dissolved, they would make a public announcement. And, then, and so you would have announcement in the newspapers that the partnership of so-and-so and so-and-so and so, uh, has been dissolved as of this date. And so I knew that there were some partnerships that I knew the end date of, but I wanted to know the beginning date of. And what I found is that these kinds of records were routinely destroyed by every municipality that had kept them. And it had been at one time a requirement, but I found very little information uh, on those partnerships. And um, the same was true and turned out to be true about incorporations. In every State of the Union and Territory, as Utah was after 1850, the laws provided for incorporations and required that the Incorporators submit the Articles of Incorporation to the Secretary of the Territory or a Secretary of State and to the County Clerk, where the, the uh, organization was incorporated. And then, the state law in Utah, as well as far as I'm aware in every other state of the union and territory before their statehood, required that the annual election bonds for officers and directors also be filed with the state and with the county. What I found out when I started doing this research in 1975, was that there were only three counties in Utah that had kept those election bonds. And they were essential for me to be able to trace the history of each individual, as well as all of the general authorities who might have been involved in various corporations. And only the the counties of Cache, no Cache, excuse me, Weaver and Salt Lake and Utah County uh, had kept those bonds. And so I was really limited in terms of what I could find in terms of the historical pattern of uh, management for a corporation. I could find the the articles of incorporation in all these other counties, but nothing in between that filing and the uh, amendments that might have been made to the articles and those were kept by the county and by the state. But not the election bonds, and then uh, I found out that that was unfortunately also the, the the pattern in every state and county throughout the rest of the United States that I contacted. They had all destroyed these election bonds because they took up space, and it was a it was a uh, space saving method. And I don't know if they were allowed to do this by law or if they just did it out of a period of decades that passed and so they destroyed the documents. But anyway, I had very limited ability to follow the management history of incorporated entities uh, outside those three counties that had kept all the election bonds. And in Salt Lake County, for example, there were some that were just a file on a, a company just about that thick that had a few election bonds and then the articles of incorporation and any amendments to those articles, um, and then the article of or statement of dissolution when the company no longer existed. I found others like the ZCMI, which had for many years uh, been the church's department store, about that thick of papers. So the, that was the range. During the intensive research that I did in the Salt Lake County files, I did the research on nearly 13,000 of these corporations. And again, their files varied from just a few pieces of paper to something that was maybe a a foot uh, thickness of individual papers. And so uh, I kept compiling that information and then through diaries and sometimes through newspaper announcements of the election of officers from a company, I was able to fill in gaps that the uh, documents for other counties in Utah and in some cases, other counties of other states that I was looking at, newspaper accounts of the elections, uh, which were usually annually, uh, provided the information that I couldn't find in the records that had been preserved at the county level or at the state level. So over the years, from 1975 to the year 2000, I had uh, compiled a, a, a list of each company and a, a, a kind of a, a historical sketch. Not of its entire management, but of its management that involved these men who were General Authorities of the LDS Church. And I really wanted to publish that. Well, Origins of Power came out and it was too thick, too big to put in uh, the full uh, listing. And so what I did is I had biographical sketches of each individual man who was a General Authority during that time period. And Origins of Power dealt with primarily with Joseph Smith, and ended with Brigham Young's arrival in the Salt Lake Valley. And so in each sketch, I would identify the names of the companies that I, as of its publication, uh, I knew uh, the man had a connection with because of my decades of research. And then in 1997, the Extensions of Power covered the period from 1848 down to 1996. But my listing of, of the individuals for their biographical sketches only covered those who were appointed up to 1932, uh, uh, because I, I had a, a limit on what I had been researching. And each of their biographical sketches also listed the names. But if any of you have looked at that, you'll notice that there's no way of knowing in what capacity. Brigham Young or Joseph Smith or, or Heber J. Grant or any of the others that are have biographical sketches of, in what capacity and during what period of time they served in each of these companies, and I wanted to have that published. But again, with this book, it was almost a, uh, a bindery breaker. Uh, at the length that I had. And I didn't have the space in that volume. And the publisher um, didn't, didn't have the inclination or the space to put in that additional appendix that I wanted to add. And at the time, when I, I wrote a, parag- or not a paragraph, excuse me, a, a chapter about business and finance for that second volume on extensions of power, mm-hmm. And I mentioned in there that I'd identified 900 companies that involved the General Authorities during up until that point. And I wanted that to be published, and it would have been around 100 pages or so. And so when I was nearing the completion of some of these projects that I was working on in the beginning of the 21st century, I contacted uh, Signature Books, who had published the first two, and said, I I want you to publish this appendix because, you know, the people who bought these first two volumes they don't have any of the details that that appendix provides and that's kind of frustrating for the readers, I'm sure and so I wanted the uh, publisher, Signature Books to put out an addendum that just was that um, appendix of those company sketches around 900 companies at the time and the, uh, the managing editor of, of Signature Books, Ron Prutus at the time, said, well, this is interesting, but we don't publish appendixes uh, on their own. You have to provide us with a full book. And then, you know, that can be a part of a complete book, but you've got to provide us with a book. And I didn't, I was tired of, of doing this. <laughs> And I didn't want to do uh, more research and certainly no more writing on on the Mormon hierarchy. I thought the series could just be completed with the appendix and that would be it. And he said, nothing doing. I mean, if you don't give us, it's your choice, uh, but if you don't give us a full book, you're not going to get the appendix in, in print. And I whined and moaned and groaned. and. I did not want to go back to do this, but finally I decided that it was important enough for me to make available those sketches that I decided, all right, I'm going to do a, a book. And I wasn't sure really what that would mean, except I knew that I had this and I could use that as a springboard, that appendix that I'd worked on for decades. So in... June of 2008, I started working full-time on this new book. And uh, I worked on that for uh, two years, or not two years, excuse me, four years, until I had a completed manuscript and I handed it to Signature Books. Well, things had grown dramatically uh, in a number of ways, and I'll talk about one of the other ways it grew. But, with reference to that time period from 1830s to 1930s that I covered in that appendix. That appendix now is numbered as number five in this book. And it now has um, 1,800 companies in it. So I found a lot of stuff. I didn't know it was there because I was forced to. And I'm glad that I was. And uh, it worked out very well. But It was something I really resisted doing because I did not want to do the amount of work. But there was a golden ring at the end of the ride. Um, The other thing was that as I was doing this research on the book and then telling people that I was expanding to another volume, it occurred to me, and I think people may have mentioned it or asked, are you going to include the 21st century because the extensions of power it ended in 1996 and I the more I thought about it even though I had resisted doing any more research or writing I just figured it would be look weird it would be weird even in my own definition to do this book in the 21st century and not talk about what happened after 1996. So I decided that I would bring it up to some point, and I wasn't sure what the end point would be, but some point in the 21st century. And so that was an expansion. And then around 2009, as I was talking with uh, somebody about what I was doing, he, he asked me, and I forget right now, I can't name him. I wish I could give him credit, but I can't. I, because I talked with a lot of people and I can't remember which one was the one who mentioned this but this one person said well you're going to bring it up to the 21st century yes I, I'm planning to do that well then you're going to deal with the international church I said, why should I want to do that that will double my, my research I'm having enough trouble keeping everything in together looking at headquarters and the general authorities. Why would I want to look at the international church? And he said, well, every country requires that the church in those countries submit an annual financial report. And I had no idea. This was just totally unknown to me. And uh, I'm so grateful that that he brought it to my attention. And uh, so... I began doing a little research and and went to somebody uh, who had a a file that they kept on things that were of interest to them. And one of the things were these reports. They had the reports from Canada. And so I looked at them and uh, they were tremendously detailed uh, according to what the government of Canada had required. So I thought, well, this is something I can't really ignore because I found that many of these reports were available on the internet, which I had no knowledge of because I'm a, a kind of a semi-Luddite. I'm not in, I don't use the internet except when I have to. And uh, I don't destroy machines like the Luddites did, but I use technology only when I have to. So I'm not in line on, uh, uh, at my home. I go to the library to use the internet. Do emailing and usually I don't have much time for anything else. But I made time with the Claremont uh, uh, Theological or Claremont School of Theology, using their electronic resources to do a lot of the research. And I credit them for the amount of months of day daily hours long research I did on this book. And I found many of the reports, the annual reports, were on, available online. If you did, did a Google search and used the right words, you could find uh, the, the reports. And, um, and then it occurred to me, how extensive should I be? And I decided that I wanted to deal with the full coverage of whatever my book was going to end at and initially, I thought, well, maybe 2009 or 2010. And, you know, I really wasn't sure when I was going to, to stop it. But I, eventually, I found that according to whatever national law was involved with the requirement to, fill, to uh, file these reports, it, in many cases, uh, almost everyone allowed a full year to pass. Before you needed to submit as a corporation, nonprofit, and the church fell under that requirement, the previous year's financial report. And in some cases, it was a year and a half or two years before these were filed. And I thought, well, I can't bring it up to the year of publication because there will be some reports that haven't been submitted yet. And so I decided, all right, I'm going to, uh, historians love even dates. So I'm going to make it from 1830 to 2010. And that's what I did. And so I didn't look at any financial report after 2010. Um, Then the other question is, once I've decided when my end date would be, how many countries am I going to include? And uh, I knew that there were these English language reports from Canada and the UK. And and so uh, it was a question of, well, what about Germany Uh, German reports what about Latin America many many uh, countries have vigorous large populations in Latin America but then it occurred to me that I would either be depending on somebody else's expertise as a translator or using a a, a Spanish language because I'm have a kind of a street knowledge of Spanish, even though I'm half Mexican, but German is my second language, and, I, uh, and I'm pretty good in, in translating German, but uh, technical German is a problem no matter what you look at, but no matter what the, <coughs> the emphasis is, whether it's science or literature uh, or economics and accounting and I knew that I would end up having to learn a complete new vocabulary as well as grammar and the grammar constructions that were a part of German uh, technical language for accounting and, um, and financial reports. And I just decided that this would invite too many questions from readers and, and would uh, naturally involve a certain fuzziness. Did I get these or did my translator, whoever I had reading Spanish reports or German or French reports or even Japanese, um, did they get it right? And I wouldn't know. I would have to depend on the skill of the person I asked to do it in each language. And I decided that that would be a quagmire that I didn't want to get into. So I decided to only deal with the English language reports, and I have them from six different countries from New Zealand, Australia, the Philippines, Canada, uh, the UK, and um, I believe, Tonga. Seven, uh, six countries. Uh, and then there were others I tried to get the reports from and was unsuccessful. I contacted the Hong Kong. Uh, In uh, part of the government that is in charge of these reports. It's a a special district uh, of the People's Republic of China and the reports are both in Mandarin and in English. And I contacted them and said I'd be willing to pay for the photocopying and shipment of these and they said, oh, you know, send us the, uh, the proper amount of money and and we'll be glad to send them to you. So I got the report and uh, it was called a financial report but there was almost nothing in there financial and I just I compared this to what I'd gotten from all these other countries and I just I, I, I couldn't use it as a point of comparison and then uh, I contacted uh, other countries like Union of South Africa, or, well, that's the old name, the Republic of South Africa. And they had received only one report from the church, and they put a, a portion of its, of its figures and the amounts online, and I said, well, I'd like to see the report, the full report. And for whatever reason, I don't think it was a privacy law, they said nothing doing. And so I ended up with commenting in a paragraph in the book about the Republic of South Africa and what the one available report uh, indicated and then uh, I was very interested in Nigeria and Ghana because their reports are in English and the combination of those two countries, there are more than a million members of record uh, of the LDS church in those countries and so I was very interested in what their financial reports would say so I contacted the com- government office that dealt with commerce and financial reports and and they said oh yes you can you can order those and and uh, but we're not the office you need to contact and they so they gave me both Nigeria and Ghana gave me other email addresses of the country for, uh, within the governments of each country that I should contact so I contacted those and they said well, I, each one of them said, I don't handle this. You're going to have to go to this other uh, division of our country to get those reports. Well, they were sending me back to the one I'd contacted originally. And in both countries, I was I was a ping-pong ball going back and forth within their bureaucracies, and I never could get anything uh, from either of them. So I just had to shrug and say, well, I can't do anything in Africa. Uh, I can't comment uh, in any kind of detail aside from that one report from the Republic of South Africa. So the kind of comparisons that I was able to do involve only those six countries that I mentioned. And then I, I want to talk about what I think were the, in many ways, the most surprising things that I found in my research and when I pulled all my research together in in writing it. And one of uh, those things has to do with the financial compensation that the General Authorities uh, received over time, historically. And initially during the first years, of first decades of the existence of the presiding quorums of the General Authorities, there was no salary system. There was Provision in the uh, early, pardon me, the early revelations for providing financial support, and in fact, the phrase in the revelations is "the laborer is worthy of his hire." But uh, it was a happenstance basis when the missionaries, uh, who were the apostles in many cases initially, went to England or Scotland or Wales. Uh, they went without purse or script meaning that they did not have money that they carried with them and they depended on the kindness of strangers and sometimes those strangers were non-mormons who would invite them in and to sleep in a in a barn or to have dinner other times they were already converted members of the church but it was a very happenstance kind of life and their wives back in the United States, uh, initially in Kirtland, Ohio, for these foreign missionaries, and then in Nauvoo, Illinois, their wives just were able to survive on the basis of what their husbands had saved from their occupations. Brigham Young, for example, was a painter and a, a cabinet. He was a painter and a carpenter. And the, I think the daughters of the Utah Pioneers uh, have have preserved in their museum some of his early chairs and other things that he made as a carpenter and um, so they they had some money that they had left their wives or left to their wives when they left on these missions and if that wasn't sufficient to keep food on the table for their wives at home then the wives had to come to the bishop of the of Kirtland, or the bishops, one of their bishops in, in Nauvoo, there's more than one bishop in Nauvoo, uh, and ask for assistance because there was no uh, set way of providing a salary. And then when Brigham Young, who had gone through this process, became president of the church, he maintained this happenstance way of, of providing financial support to the apostles and or and, and anyone else who was a full-time servant in the church, uh, primarily the presiding bishopric and the, uh, count, the council of 70, as it was called, which was seven men at the time, and then the patriarch to the church. And uh, after he died, his successor finally set up a system of of regular compensation, and it was stratified according to Quorum. The president of the church got the most each month, or adding them up on an annual basis, his counselors got the next most, the senior apostles the next most, the junior apostles the next most, then the Petra Primi, the presiding bishop the next most, and the bishop's counselors. And initially that was where it ended. The poor members of the council of 70 remained poor, as did the patriarch. They were not included in the salary system until the 1890s. And then in the 1890s, under the counselors to the bishop, then the senior members of the 70 got the next most, and the junior members of the 70, and at the bottom was the patriarch. And uh, the only time that the patriarch of the, of the church received Wealth, or can, you can look at the uh, annual assessments for property tax in Kirtland and, and in uh, Nauvoo. When the patriarch of the church was Joseph Smith, Sr., he had a middling amount of, of wealth. When the patriarch to the church after his death was his son, Hiram, who was not only patriarch to the church, or presiding patriarch, as it was called at the time, but he was also essentially a, a joint president of over the church with Joseph Smith. And he had a, uh, a wealth you know, on an annual basis, according to the assessments in Nauvoo, that was um, much higher than the apostles. That ended with Hiram Smith's death. And from that time forward, the patriarch of the church, by whatever measure you look at, economically, financially, was always at the bottom of the, the financial support that the all of the other general authorities received. And this stratified system, although it was expanded to include the seventy and the patriarch in the 1890s, it continued down to the 1960s to be stratified according to your. Status in the hierarchy or the presiding quorums. And then it ended being stratified under the presidency of David O. McKay. And he made the compensation equal so that from 1966 onward to the present, the president of the church receives what's called a living allowance. Uh, Outsiders and maybe even some within the church community would call this a salary, but the preferred term is allowance or living allowance, is standard and equalized so that the most junior member of the presiding quorums receives the same monthly check in in amount as does the president of the church. Now, for a period of time, there were additional supplements to this, particularly the uh, the Amounts that a director or an officer of a church company received. And I'll exclude uh, Heber J. Grant from this because he was always an avid businessman. Uh, as much as 65% or more of his income came from corporate sources and uh, not simply from his, his uh, allowance as president of the church. But his two successors had not been avid businessmen, George, I mean, George Albert Smith and then David O. McKay. And they did receive significant uh, additional amounts of money from their their uh, role as officers or directors of church-owned companies. Uh, some of the authorities also were directors of, of non-church companies like Union Pacific or Western Airlines, but um, those were few and far between. Most of the money from uh, director's fees or officer fees were coming from church-owned or controlled corporations. That ended for the first presidency in, in the 1970s when Spencer W. Kimball said the church has grown too large for me and my counselors to be diverted from its responsibilities for the stakes and wards with these other corporate opportunities and so they withdrew from almost all the only ones that the president Kimball remained Uh, and and he had the title of of president was uh, Bonneville International which was this very large communications uh, corporation and then also Desert Management which was an umbrella for many of the church's fully owned corporations and then in 1996 uh, the growth of the church was such that the uh, Apostles who had been very active in corporate leadership up until that point were no longer involved. And so the supplemental income that corporations provided to some, but not all, of the general authorities above their monthly living allowance, that ended in 1996. And now the uh, corporate responsibilities that some of the General Authorities have, are limited to companies like the Temple Corporation, which is not a profit-making uh, enterprise. It is it's clearly an ecclesiastical corporation and uh, would not have a profit base to give significant uh, fees to those General Authorities who have been directors of that company. And so for the most part, the only other subsidy that I'm aware of that, and it's not really a subsidy, it's a private uh, enterprise that not all, but some general authorities engage in, and that is book royalties. And uh, you go to the shelves of the local 70s bookstore. Do they still have that? (laughs) 70s? All right, that's gone. I'm old, old school. (laughs) Uh, The desert bookstore branches, will go by that, that you find general authorities as authors of various books. They receive royalties from those books, like every author does, from the publisher. However, biographies of those general authorities, they don't get anything. A biography is written by somebody else, and they're the ones who get the book royalties. So um, book royalties do not come to you just because you're a general authority. Uh, and I have no idea what those book royalties are at present, but I can comment on the um, book royalties of Joseph Fielding Smith. When he died in 1972, his probate of the state gave a, a list of all his assets, including all of his, his monthly income. And uh, for the month before his death, and with the um, Desert Book Company and the other um, mainly Desert Book, he didn't do too much with Bookcraft at the time, which was not owned at the, his death by Desert Book, it is now. But um, in 1972, Desert Book was his only publisher, and he had books going back to 1905 that he was still receiving royalties on because they were still in print and they were still being published and uh, he had dozens of books well with that kind of publishing history from 1905 down to I think 1970 or so was the last book published under his name for which he was receiving a um, A remuneration through book book royalties. His six-month check, because it was paid every six months, it happened that it uh, it had not yet been deposited and uh, into his uh, ownership until he died, and so it was a part of his probate of the estate. And for during that six-month period, his total revenues that year for that six months was six thousand dollars. So an annual of $12,000 uh because it would depend on the number of copies of his books sold, was what he was making in 1972. Now, um, the, the value of the 1972 dollar is around uh, at, in 19, or pardon me, 2010 around $4. Uh, Each dollar in 1972 has the purchasing power in 2010 of around $4 and maybe a little bit less. So $48,000 in the 21st century is a significant supplement, but two things to consider. Very few of the General Authorities have as many books as he had, dozens of books that he was receiving royalties on. So I think it would be fair to cut that in half at the most, uh, even for best-selling General Authorities, and say, all right, no more than around twenty dollars to $25,000 for the most uh, published General Authority in the 21st century. Um... That's, uh, uh, for me, that's a lot of money. Because I've always, I am come from a working class, blue-collar family. But the amount in, that that could pay for is relatively small. And you couldn't live on that alone. And so the supplement that book royalties provide to the current members of the General Authorities could be significant if they've written a lot and published a lot. If they haven't, it's, mean, if not meaningless, it's, it's modest. So these men are not in it for the money, and that's another remarkable discovery I made, primarily because of the uh, financial reports given by the church in other countries. In 2014, you may have read the uh, Salt Lake Tribune or its reprints of that had photographs of the pay stubs of a member of the Quorum of the Twelve as of 1999, and also had a, photog- a photograph of a letter written in 2014 in which stated that the uh, living allowance of all the general authorities was being increased as of 2014, to $120,000 annually. So that the president of the church and the newest member, the most junior member of the 12 or of the general authorities serving full-time at that at that point was receiving $120,000 as of 2014. Well, the report from Canada required that, as in other reports, from elsewhere, but I select Canada, uh, it required that the report specify the highest salaries paid to the employees within the church. And these are bureaucrats. I mean, the preferred term uh, at church headquarters is these are church administrators. To me, they're bureaucracy, (laughs) and these are top bureaucrats, and depending on their experience, they have very specialized uh, skills for which they get the top money. Well, the top bureaucrat in 2010, four years before the general authority um, salary, well, uh, remuneration or living allowance was raised, raised, to 120,000 in 2010, the top bureaucrat, non-general authority in Canada, was making more than twice the level of their compensation in 2014. Mm-hmm. And the general authorities are the ones who establish the 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 general uh, levels of compensation for the the administrators of the church. And so these men who are presiding over an organization, and that's one other thing I'll mention, but I'll explain how I did it, That are, are an organization that is bringing in tens of billions of dollars annually, these men allow themselves a, quote, salary or living allowance that is less than half of what top bureaucrats in the church receive. And I doubt that the top bureaucrats as of 2010 at church headquarters made less than the top church administrator or non-general authority bureaucrat in Canada was making. And so in the building right next to the church administration building where the first presidency and Quorum of the Twelve have their offices in that 26-story building are rank-and-file members of the church, just regular Joes, who because of their corporate experience or, or special experience in terms of special training that they have, are receiving double or more uh, of what the General Authorities allow themselves as a living allowance. Yeah. Now, for me, as a seventh-generation Mormon, I find that faith-promoting. And I wish I had thought of this comparison. At one point, I was thinking of comparing the, the remuneration as of 2014 that was verified by this letter uh, from church, within church headquarters. I thought of comparing that to what the CEO of General Electric or uh, Mobile Uh, Exxon received and I decided no that would be comparing apples and oranges and it never occurred to me to compare them and their living allowance to what the CEO of a charitable institution received and I was giving this this book talk in San Francisco and some of you may know him um, Bob Reese raised his hand and he said Mike do you know what the annual compensation salary of the CEO of the Red Cross is? I have no idea. And he said it's a million two. Ten times more than the president of the LDS Church receives. And I wish I'd thought of comparing nonprofits or a charity like the Red Cross and their compensation to their CEO with what the president of the church receives at 10 times less. And I do know that nonprofits like universities, their presidents, Harvard, Yale, even the University of Utah, somebody told me last week, are in the multiple millions of annual salary, and that's not including benefits. Frankly, I've, I think that's an outrage. But the nonprofits, and especially charities, should give so much of their money rather than to and rd or to student scholarships or what or to the library or whatever whatever else this nonprofit is involved with that that their CEOs get more than a million or more than several million dollars of salaries plus benefits. And in, in corporations it's stock options as well. Anyway, for me this comparison is faith-promoting. Now, I want to close with this reference to the billions that I mentioned, multiple billions that the Church is receiving. I know in tithing, the annual tithing from the 1890s that the Church received up to 1962. And I chose the annual rate of growth during the 1950s as establishing what the average uh, mean average growth rate for tithing was during that decade and i think that's a conservative measure because during that decade the church was sending missionaries and building chapels or renting chapels but building chapels in many of these countries and building temples as well in war-torn europe which was still rebuilding uh, after world war ii in war-torn asia which was doing likewise and in Latin America, and in the 1950s in Latin America, in every country of Latin America, 1% of each country's population, on average, owned 80 to 90% of its wealth. So the Mormons who were being converted and for whom the church was paying large sums of money to build chapels, they were unable, even if they could pay a, a full tithing, they were unable to provide for the expenses of the church in those countries in which they lived. And when I talk about ability, in the Philippines, for example, the Filipinos, on average, uh, a family, is able to put food on the table for one meal for each member of the family each day. If they try to pay a full tithing, they are essentially robbing peter to pay paul they are taking money from not money but food or other necessities from members of their family in order to pay their tithing and those who do or make the effort to pay a full tithing uh, are you know they're they're to be praised to the heavens literally so the church and i found this out by the reports from the philippines for example which is why i emphasize that that disparity of wealth in the philippines the church pays according to their financial reports 95 to 98% of their expenses that the tithing of their filipino mormons cannot pay and i'm sure that's true for the entire developing world that the church in Ghana and Nigeria and other countries of South Africa where in total there are multiple millions of Mormons, they can't pay more than 2%, maybe 5 at the most, but probably in Africa only 1% or 2% of their expenses. And in Latin America, it would have to be the same as it is in, in the Philippines. And even in a country like England, where the church has had a significant presence since 19, pardon me, 1837, I found that in the year 2006, LDS headquarters in Salt Lake City gave them nearly one billion dollars to supplement their expenses that their tithing within that country could not pay. Now you. Apply that throughout the world to other industrialized countries, and you begin to get a picture of where the church's money is going. It's not going to City Creek in Salt Lake City. That 1.5 billion is a drop in the bucket, literally. The vast amount of the billions that the church is spending does not go to a paid ministry. Those of you who have been and are or are bishops or state presidents know that. And they're not. They're not pay, you know, allowing the general authorities to have golden faucets in their bathroom, which is true of many of the dictators throughout the world and maybe some of the billionaires in the United States. That money is going to the rank and file, both in the United States, in Canada and throughout the world. And even in Canada, which is the least dependent on LDS headquarters, I found that one year. They uh, receive 6% of their expenses paid by Salt Lake headquarters. Uh, some years they had no, no uh, supplement that was given to them by LDS headquarters, but they're not quite able to pay for all of the expenses every year uh, uh, on the basis of their tithing. So these are the things that I found that I find um, fascinating. And these are the things that I've emphasized in the book, as well as a lot of other stuff. And now, with that, any questions? Yes.
0: Thank you. Have you had a chance to interview uh, the general authorities and and get a sense of of how they deal with this disparity vis-a-vis their compensation versus... The others, I mean, it, it is amazing. But what what drives it is it uh, we we need to serve, and we need to be poor to serve, or
1: what? Well, um, I can't. I I don't feel at liberty to identify this current member of the of the twelve. But I've talked with uh, members of his family, and when he accepted his uh, calling to be a general authority, his income dropped by 60 percent. And the members of his family who visit him frequently in Salt Lake City say that he lives in a very modest house. And he built that house not by any gift from the church, but from money that he had saved from his uh, profession before he accepted the full-time calling as a general authority. These men serve out of a, uh, what I see as a selfless devotion to the Mormon phrases, building the kingdom of God. For Not only for His glory, but f- according to the second commandment that Jesus announced, because of the love of their fellow members of the church. That's who they're serving. And they're willing to live modestly and to be compensated in their living allowances, far less than they had received before they, most of them, before they received this calling, because of that mission that they each individually feel they are engaged in, in building the kingdom of God and in serving the children of God on earth. So that's the motivation. And I think that uh, that has governed most of the General Authorities, I won't say all because anytime you have humans, you have people who have weaknesses in one way or another, um, but the, the vast majority from the 1830s to the present are those who have served and sacrificed financially in order to carry out this kind of, of service that they see as a mission, yes.
0: You, during the Great Recession, uh,
1: was the church in Salt Lake uh, more or less fronting money to states and wards to help some members who were unemployed? Now that money. I don't know. But, but what I do know is that with all of this, this, and you can look at the charts I have that show the continued supplement or stipend that the headquarters in Utah provided to these various countries that that uh, continued to submit these financial reports during the Great Recession from say 2007 to 2009. They continued to, to do that from church headquarters. And I'm certain that the portfolio of the church took a hit. All the portfolios did during that period. However, the Uh, Financial procedures that were established, and investment procedures that were established by Eneld and Tanner in the uh, mid-1960s have continued to the present, and I've been told that by various people who are in the know, that uh, those were so successful in bringing the church out of a cash flow crisis that it was in, uh, in 1962 and 63 that they have been maintained and so even though the church portfolio like even the most conservative ones throughout the nations that you are throughout the nation that you can read about in their reports they took a hit whether it was churches that have announced this or nonprofits or universities all of these portfolios based in stocks and bonds primarily, took a hit. However, in the, eight, in the 1990s, the church took over everything, basically except tithing for the members of the church. And those of you who can remember back as far as I do, remember that 10% wasn't the end of what you did. And if you added up the budget for maintenance, and repairs of your local meeting house a a building uh, fund that was established for adding on to the uh, structure or for building a new one and the temple budget for building a temple in your your neighborhood that for many members of the church that total with tithing came up to 15% of their earnings each year or each month, however they paid their tithing. Well, in the 1990s, the church headquarters absorbed those costs. And I think it's an indication that whatever hit, and I have no idea how much it was, that the church portfolio took during the Great Recession uh, from 2007 to 2009, it did not require retrenchment where the church headquarters said, well, this was a good idea, but now you're gonna have to pay the budget and building costs and whatever, and you're gonna have to pay for the full cost of a missionary who lives in one of the most expensive cities of the world, whether it's Tokyo or Paris or New York or London. That didn't happen. So the church had enough of what used to be called, and it may still be called, a reserve fund that uh, of the combination coming from its annual tithing receipts as well as from its commercial income that there was not enough of a buffer to ride through that those years of the Great Recession and not have to, to retrench and call again upon the members of the church to pay that additional 5% uh, or more that they had previously been expected to pay for these in other, well they're not incidentals but these other categories of donations that uh, are no longer required that's all I can say about that issue, yes now in the red shirt yes. right now? Maybe, maybe it's in the book Do you have an estimate
0: of what the annual income is and what the assets of the church are
1: Alright, those are two questions, I'll deal with the second one first. The assets of the church, that is a difficult nut to crack. In the sense that, as Gordon B Hinckley frequently said during his uh, councilorship and his presidency, the church has a large number of assets, but they're money consuming. The, it takes money to build a chapel, it takes money to buy the land on which a chapel is built. It takes money to build a temple, and then you have all the maintenance, which the church has been absorbing since the 1990s. And so what is really significant is not the total assets, but the total net assets. And I don't have that information, I can't answer that, except that anyone who talks about how much land the church owns in California or how much it owns in in um, Salt Lake City or Utah. Uh, in Nebraska, the church is the largest um, private ownership uh, in the state of Nebraska of land. It is likewise the largest private owner of land in the state of Florida. And I assume that's also true in Utah, but I haven't seen the reports that indicate that. But remember that until a, a building is built on land, it's taxable, because it isn't being used for a, a religious purchase. Once there's a building on it, yes, if it's a building for worship or if it's a temple, which is also exempt, then they don't have to pay taxes. But until that happens, undeveloped land is taxable. And then all of the lands that... Are used for church farms and for church recreational facilities, and I talk about those. Are depending on state laws, are taxable and non-taxable. It depends according to your state what uh, what exemptions that state allows. But uh, I can't state what is the net assets of the church in terms of its income. I can with more ability. Again, I said that I depended on the 1950s annual increase which during that decade uh, was average, mean average, 12.9% each year. And I applied that to the year 1960 to 2010 and I have a chart in there showing what that annual rate of growth would mean from the amount that I know was uh, received by the church uh, in tithing in in 1960 because I had the presiding bishops' reports for that year. And then I tested to see if it was as conservative a measure as I thought for the reasons I mentioned in terms of the kind of uh, commitments the church was making in the 1950s throughout the world. And I found that the actual tithing received in 1961, which I had uh reference of from, from annual reports, was significantly less than the table that I had created and projected. And 1962 likewise, significantly less. So I think that type of projection, although it does not allow for things like the Great Recession, it's a straight line uh, extrapolation or progression, projection, but um, I think it's conservative and by that uh, measure, in the year 2000 the church by those measures received 33 billion with a B dollars in tithing and then on top of that is the commercial income which is from its for-profit businesses and its portfolio of stocks and bonds and um, the Reports that I've seen for 2000. Pardon me, for 1900 and 1902 showed that commercial income accounted for nearly 18% of the church's total revenues each year. In 1928, the reports show that commercial income accounted for nearly 30% of the church's total revenues. In the 1960s, in the mid-1960s, and in the mid-1970s, Elton Tanner, who was the counselor in charge of church finance, told reporters for two financial magazines that tithing brought in about half of the total receipts of the church annually. And so I, by that, understood that the, the meaning of that was that commercial income brought in about 40 to 45 percent. Well, if you apply any one of those standards, early 1900s, 1928, or mid 1960s to 70s to the 2010, you'll you'll add 10 to 15 billion dollars in commercial income of various kinds. On top of the 33 billion projected uh, in tithing, so the church is immensely wealthy in one sense, but it is pushing out in expenses throughout the United States, throughout the Canada, Canada, and throughout the developing world as well as the industrial world, like the UK. Billions and billions of dollars annually to support the programs and building program of the church throughout the world. So my uh, position is that even though some, and have expressed this privately and publicly, members of the church feel uncomfortable if not Um, very critical of the church spending 1.5 billion dollars on a mall in Salt Lake City that has to be put on into context with the entire financial um, view that I I have arrived at and also in context with the, the fact that in one country in the 21st century an industrial country uh, the church gave half a billion dollars to that country to support its programs, and uh, I think at that point, the it's not that the money a billion and a half is certainly not it's not pocket change, <laughs> but it is it is a small amount when compared to the total picture that I try to present in the book. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Um, curious, because you were talking about trying to figure out what would be a good comparison. You hadn't thought about charitable organizations. But of course, the thing that occurs to me is the possibility of
0: uh, other churches and their hierarchy and making that comparison. I don't know whether there's data or whether you thought about making that comparison.
1: No, I mean, the Catholic hierarchy, yeah, will allow that to slip out of their hands when you pull it out of their dead clutched hands. <laughs> um, and that is true of almost every other church. Uh, there is no requirement for nonprofits of any kind to, uh, in the United States to state their income that comes to their CEOs. And I, you know, I don't know on what basis uh, Bob Reese Gave me that information about the CEO of, of Red Cross, but I think it's probably a voluntary disclosure. And many nonprofits I know do that. I mean, for example, universities are nonprofits, and yet because they uh, are so much in the public eye, voluntarily they they they, in most cases, tell their board of trustees, and that is released in an annual report. By Yale, Harvard, and University of Utah, of what the the uh, financial salary is of the the president of the those universities. Coach. Pardon. And the In, football coach. And football coaches. Yeah, yeah. who c- sometimes make more than the presidents of the <laughs> universities, which I think is another scandal. But anyway, uh, questions.
0: Uh, yeah, um, I I'm wondering you you've got. You've got a lot of disclosures from um, other countries, English-speaking company er, uh, countries, and and how much the church is, you know, this annual report. So in the United States, we don't have an annual report, no. and why do we not have one? And why does the church not not used to. not show, you know, what it is that we're doing?
1: Okay, the annual reports were uh, on a regular basis from. 1915 to 1959. And the April conference of 1959 was the last one. And only the very first year did the annual report cover tithing as well, tithing received. And I think people who know that the reports continued down to 1959 sometimes assume that that included tithing and never did. Only 1915's report did. But In selective categories, during those years, the church specified its expenditures. Now, the reason the reports ended in 1959 was because of what I mentioned with regard to N. Eldon Tanner. He came in when there was a cash flow crisis, and the background to that is that under the financial stewardship of J. Reuben Clark from 1934 when he became first counselor, Until about 1954, the church uh, only spent about 28% at the most of its annual tithing. And the rest went into church-owned banks, which although they undoubtedly gave a generous um, rate of income, or rate of interest rather, to the church deposits, they would not provide the same amount that the stock market could even with blue chip stocks but um, because of his experience in the Great Depression Jerry Reuben Clark trusted that as much as he would a roulette wheel and so he wouldn't only allow the money to go into and buy uh, into church owned banks and this amounted in multi multi millions I, I didn't see if I ever did I didn't keep track of it I was more interested in the tithing annually received and the other details I could have gotten from those annual reports that I had access to. But this reserve fund, as he called it, and as it was called generally, was extremely large by 1959. And in 1959, the church, under the leadership of of a replacement uh, as financial steward, uh, Henry D. Moyle began a, uh, a very ambitious building program throughout the world and in locations such as the ones I served in in the early 1960s in England, branches that had 75 attending members that were meeting in meeting houses that sat 2,000. And the projections of membership that, that these buildings were built on in that size, and it was not just England, it was throughout Europe, it was throughout Latin America, it was throughout Asia, the Pacific, Oceania, um, that far exceeded the amount of, of, of tithing that the church was receiving at church headquarters. And so from 1959 onward, the church was deficit spending. Now, deficit spending doesn't require borrowing if you have a pile of money that you can draw on, and the church had a pile of money that had, that had been saved for almost 30, well, actually more than 30 years. And so it began using that to, to uh, supplement the tithing that could not pay for this building program. But the building program continued, and it drained entirely the reserve fund and to show you how bad the cash flow crisis was in 1963 the financial officers in Salt Lake didn't think they'd be able to make the um, the payroll for church employees. That's how bad it was. And it's not because the church was bankrupt. Like many corporation bankrupts, and of course the church is a corporation, the church had large amounts of assets but most of these were fixed assets. They couldn't be converted immediately into the cash that the church needed by 1963 to pay all of its obligations, including salaries of its employees. And so that was the situation the church was in when Henry D. Moyle died and he was replaced by N. Elton Tanner, who rescued the church from the brink as a Canadian millionaire, former member of the uh, Canadian government's cabinet. Um, he came in and he introduced high finance in procedures and in policies uh, to church finances and it took a few years but by 1969 three six years later the church was totally in the black and able to pay its uh, its required outlay and able to bank away or invest. And he specified that he preferred to invest in blue-chip stocks. And so no longer was the massive reserve fund that was being built up by an Eldon Tanner uh, confined to banks as it had been during the uh, nearly 30 years prior to that enormous building program that drained the reserve fund. And... uh, so the, the income of the church became stabilized and protected in a way that it hadn't been before because of the, the uh, kind of high finance that Ennold and Tanner introduced into the church. Yes? You've described a scenario, if I heard you, where even today the... Tr- the- the church is giving stipends to every other country that aren't self-sufficient. My presumption then is that because the United States must be way in the black and the others are all in the red. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible Do you have any concerns otherwise. That,
0: uh, uh,
1: with, the, with the growth of the, the uh, other countries that will find ourselves in that same position you were just uh, describing just a minute ago? That is a possibility that uh, the church growth in Africa and Latin America and Asia, uh, Oceania, in countries where the population is primarily poor or lower middle class by uh, those class definitions, social class, economic class definitions, it's possible that the church's resources might not be able to meet the building program and the missionary program and etc. In all of these countries in the world, but if that happens, I, I'm my guess is it will be decades from now. And uh, the right now, although I think all of us recognize that there has been a uh, an exodus from church membership, many people just voting with their feet and, and whether they formally resign their membership or not they no longer participate they no longer pay tithing but that has happened during this period in which i have these reports showing these massive uh, supplements stipends that the the, uh, supplements is the best way to describe it because stipend is to an individual uh these massive supplements the church headquarters in utah is giving to all of these countries throughout the world. So um, my guess is that, despite the losses of formerly tithes-paying members of the church in the twenty early twenty-first century, that the widows might and the middle class and the lower middle class income families of of Mormon continued Mormon devotion are sufficiently funding the programs of the church that it has been able in the 21st century, at least according to my reports up to 2010, to maintain this kind of support for the church throughout the world. And as I said, my guess, and it's only a guess, I mean, historians are terrible prophets, but my guess is that that will continue for decades and possibly for the foreseeable future. Yes. Oh, no, no, I I won't repeat. I'll come back to you. Yes. Um, I keep thinking of the term bang for the buck. I mean, the church keeps sending this money to these other countries, I mean, and there's no return? No, uh, the the tithing has to be kept within each country, because some countries have laws that would prohibit a nonprofit from sending a large amount of money outside the country. But even those countries that do not have such laws, it would be foolish for the members of the church in Canada, for example, to send all the tithing paid to Salt Lake, and there'd be there'd be uh, transaction fees involved with conversion into US dollars before it could become a part of the, the total um, holdings of the church. And then, when the church sent money back to pay for the expenses of the church in Canada, then there would be uh, conversion rates and fees paid in, in that direction too. So it would be foolish, even if not prohibited by these local laws throughout the world, for the churches uh, throughout the world to send its tithing to Salt Lake. So, Salt Lake does not receive the tithing of these countries paid by their local members. And in only Canada, as far as I can tell, Germany might be different. And I, I didn't look at those records. But as far as I can tell, Canada is the only country that has a surplus and is able through its tithing to pay for all of its its expenses with sometimes an exception every few years that works out to a, an average of about three to six percent over a ten year period uh... there was somebody
0: could, over here Maybe one more question and okay
1: one more one somebody who hasn't asked uh... i was thinking about uh... the recent passing of elder hales and <coughs> he was not only as a, an apo- a senior apostle but he was presiding bishop for quite a while. Was his extremely valuable, or his great business experience uh, put to use then in some of the church's business? He was at uh, one time the CEO of Gillette uh-huh. and of Nabisco. Yeah. And with that experience, he was no no one just dragged off the street to handle billions of dollars in investments. So um, he undoubtedly had a a role, and maybe his role will be available to historians down down the road, as Enelton Tanner's experience has been to me, and which I quote a number of sources regarding. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcast in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.